Okay, we are working our way through. We've begun a study in the Gospel of John chapter 17 only. Uh, this is a special chapter among the four Gospels. It's the longest recorded <clears throat> prayer of the Lord Jesus. And the context, the timing, the moment of his prayer <clears throat> is significant, of course, because this is the prayer that he prayed at the very end of what is traditionally referred to as the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, uh, the night just before he was arrested and just before he was placed on trial, leading to the circumstances, of course, of his crucifixion. He's with his disciples in the upper room. They've shared a meal together. And in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 16, he's given one long last extended teaching and exhortation and encouragement time with them. And the prayer begins when Jesus had spoken these words. So he's finished teaching them and he lifts his eyes in John 17, 1 to heaven and he begins to pray. We're privileged because the Holy Spirit inspired John to record this prayer for us. We're privileged to listen in to a private conversation between the Heavenly Father and the Heavenly Son who happens to be on earth at this moment in his life. And as they're conversing, uh, we, we hear what's uppermost on his heart as he fully well knows that he's about to leave this room. He's going to go to the, the, the Mount of Olives, the, the, the slopes of the Mount of Olives where he's going to go to the Garden of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is going to be arrested there and he's going to be put on trial. He's gonna be falsely accused. He's gonna be convicted based on those false accusations and based on political maneuverings. And he is going to be tortured. And then following his torture, he is going to be crucified, which was the most torturous means of execution in the Roman Empire. And he is going to die. And he knows all of that is coming his way. And he begins to pray with all of that in his heart, but not just the circumstances, not just, wow, this is going to be really difficult. We're gonna get a prayer like that from his lips in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here he is thinking in a high level perspective about what it all is going to mean, what it's all for. And we've broken the prayer. We, you know, we haven't made our way very far through it yet. We've broken the prayer into sections and we're just finishing today, Lord willing, the first section, which is the first five verses where Jesus is specifically praying about himself. Starting in verse six and beyond, he's going to pray for the men that are in the room with him. There's only 11 that are left at this point. Remember, Judas has already left the room to go betray him. But the 11 who remain are his faithful disciples and he's going to, in verse six, begin to pray for them and his great plans for them because they're all going to be critically important foundation pieces in the, in the work that he's come to accomplish, which is the building of his church. And after praying for them, toward the end of the prayer, he's going to broaden it out and he's going to, he's going to include us in his heart's concern on that night. Uh, when we get there, I'll reemphasize this, but just think about that for a moment. The night that Jesus knew he was just about to go to the cross, 
He was praying and he was praying for you that night. You were on his heart. But before we get to that, we're focused on these first five verses where he's praying for himself. And I've identified in our studies already that in my opinion, my humble opinion, I think this is one of the two deepest portions in all of scripture. The only one that I think would rival it maybe is Ephesians chapter one. So I'm going to reread these five verses. We've, uh, this is our fifth study, so we've covered, uh, in four hours of study so far, we've covered most of these five verses. There's one last thing that I wanna emphasize from it today. 17.1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, as Jesus is praying, there's one word that stands out, um, I think, among the others that represents or points to the deepest concern in this entire prayer. All of the details that he's praying for himself, all of the details he's about to pray for the 11 men in the room with him, and all of the details that he eventually prays, including you and I in his prayer later in the prayer, all of this has to do with this one key word. And the word is glory or in the, in the action form that he's praying for, uh, for, the, for the Father God to do something regarding glory. The word is glorify. So we see this in verse one. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We see it in verse four. I glorified you on earth. And then we see it in verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what we have here is Jesus praying about glory and, and glorifying, and he's praying with a perspective about three moments, or what we would call expressions of glory. I wanna identify those three moments, but before we do, I think it'd be, I think it'd be helpful to define what we're talking about because glory is one of those terms that we all kind of know what it is, but it's important for us to be clear and understand what he's thinking as he's focused on this key concept. So when we speak about the glory of God, because that's what he's actually concerned about, he's not talking about some human or natural expression of glory. There are natural expressions of glory. Uh, for instance, um, you know, you've heard me share before, I'm a basketball fan, and when, when one team wins 
the championship at the end of the basketball season. That team is, in natural terms and in the context of basketball, that team is glorified among all of the other teams. They're set in a different category than all of the other teams. For that season, all of the other teams ultimately, no matter what expressions of, of basketball excellence they may have experienced in moments of the season, all of the other teams are losers. And there's only one team that's the winner, and that team is, is then recorded in basketball history as the champions of that year, and they, they, they're kind of clothed in admiration because of what they've accomplished in that season. But, you know, in the, in the long expanse of human history, and then we need to have an even broader and deeper perspective of that, of that than, uh, than just human history. And in the context of eternity, will it really matter so much who was the champion of basketball? on any given season or in any given year. I mean, it's, it's not unimportant to them and it's not unimportant to people that like basketball, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important, really. So human glory, and there's all kind, in every category of human endeavor and human concern and human priorities, there are expressions of natural glory, but they all fall way short of understanding where the concept of glory is derived from entirely. Let me ask you this, do you think animals are concerned about glory at all? Like is there, a, is there an elephant that when it's growing up just thinks to itself, I wanna be the best elephant that there's ever been? I mean, there's been some good elephants, but I wanna be the best. I wanna raise my trunk and trumpet like no elephant has ever trumpeted before. Do you think elephants have that thought? Because they, they have a huge brain. They're intelligent creatures. Do you, think they, do you think they ever have a thought like that? The answer is, I've never been in an elephant's brain, but the answer is probably not. I don't think animals are concerned about glory at all in terms of their own glory. But human beings are. Why is that? Because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And glory matters to God. And those that are made in God's image have their own concerns for glory. But because we're fallen and because we're affected by sin, we replace the concerns that were on Jesus's heart as he was praying that night with lesser concerns of lesser glories, far lesser glories. When we're talking about the glory of God, what we're talking about is this. Do theologians, and I'm, I'm just leaning on on better men than myself in terms of the study of God's word. Theologians define the glory of God as the nature and acts of God in self-expression. It means who God actually is in his essential nature and what we see when he acts. What we, if we have right spiritual understanding and perspective, what we observe when God does something Whenever God does something, you see an expression of glory. There's not a single time, God, throughout scripture, 
throughout redemptive history, throughout world history, has intervened in, in the events of this world and made himself known in his acts. And not one single time where God intervened in the affairs of this world did the people that observed him acting look at it and go, no big deal. It was glorious. Every single act of God is a representation of his nature now in action. But when we're talking about glorifying, which is now the, the action version of the word glory, because this is what Jesus is actually praying about. He's praying in verse one for himself to be glorified in order that he might in turn glorify his father. And in that, theologians describe to glorify as to be clothed in splendor to dress yourself in a garment of splendorous light so that anyone that sees and observes is able to recognize like, this is such a terrible comparison that I mentioned the basketball champions. They, they are forever distinguished in their own special category from all of the others that are involved in that endeavor. When we see God being glorified, or in this case, when we see his son being glorified, what we see is they're being clothed in the splendor that belongs uniquely to their own essential nature as deity, as God, unlike any other. Now, it's a study of another time. You and I, because we are being saved by the amazing grace of God, have been given promises that when the Lord returns, we are going to share in his glory in its fullness. And you and I in that future moment are going to be clothed in splendor like he himself is now clothed in splendor. But for our study, we're focused on that concept in connection to him. So what does Jesus actually pray? Pray. What's the first prayer out of his mouth? This is where the prayer begins. He starts by saying, Father, the hour has come, which we've already studied. He's focused on not a literal, technical 60-minute time period in the immediate future. He's talking about the short span of time, using an hour as a symbol, that's going to take place over the next few days. It's going to take place over the next 24 hours in terms of his arrest, in terms of his trial, in terms of his torture, and in terms of his crucifixion. And then it's going to stretch through the three days of his burial, and it's going to ultimately culminate in the third day after those events in which he will rise again from the dead, fully glorious. This is what he prays. Father, the hour has come, that's all backdrop or context the prayer though is glorify your son jesus prayed to his heavenly father to be glorified now i find this amazing and fascinating all by itself it deserves a study all by itself but we're just we're just going to 
I'm just going to comment on it and we're going to move forward. The Son of God, who, as we'll see just in a few verses here, existed before this world existed in a unique and special divine fellowship with his heavenly Father and was involved in the creation of this world itself, he prays for his Father to glorify him. He's praying in a, a position of spiritual humility. Let me ask you this. What do you pray for? And I'm not asking specifics. I'm asking in terms of category. You only ever pray for things that you can't do for yourself. Right? Like, um, how many of you brushed your teeth this morning? Of course, you're going to raise your hand whether you did or didn't. <laughs> do you pray before you pick up your toothbrush? And do you ask, Lord, give me the power to brush my teeth? Why? Why don't you? And I'm not saying you should. You'd be hyper-spiritual to pray for that. And I, I don't mean that in a complimentary way. You don't need to pray, Lord, grant me the power to brush my teeth. Why? Because you have the power to brush your teeth. I mean, unless you were infirm in some way that you literally didn't have the power to raise your arm and move it in that particular way. And there are some, of course, individuals in that kind of life circumstance. But for those that have the use of their arm, you are able to brush your own teeth, so you don't pray for that. But you do pray for things that you have no control over or no power to apply to that specific circumstance. And here, the Son of God, who is in his divine nature, fully capable of doing whatever he wants to do, prays from a heart of humility and dependence on his heavenly Father. Why? It has to do, what he prays has to do with how he ends this section in verse five. Look at verse five, and we'll get, back, we'll get to this with some more emphasis in just a few moments. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I want you to notice that key word, had. Had is present tense, future tense, past tense, past tense. He's indicating in verse five that he had glory that he presently doesn't have. So the, the, the concern on his heart in verse one is, I'm in a place of humility. I'm in a circumstance of dependence. Father, glorify your son. Now, what's also included the, in this is that there's a self-recognition here, a true and accurate self-reference. Uh, when he refers to not just his heavenly father, but he refers to himself as the son. Not just a son, not one of the sons, but at this moment in history, the one and only exclusive son of God. Now you and I are included in that number, 
Now, by the saving grace of God and the fullness of new covenant relationship with the Lord, we are all now identified as sons and daughters of God. I don't mean all in the world. I mean all who believe in Christ in a saving way and who have been truly born again of his spirit. All of us are now sons and daughters. But at this moment, he was the unique and only son. And forever and always, he will be in the sense of his divine relationship with the Heavenly Father, the unique and only son of God. And so in his self-awareness of who he really is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. What is he thinking specifically of? I'm defining glorify as to be clothed in splendor. He's saying, Father, because of the circumstances of the hour that, are, that have now arrived, the hour has come. Earlier in the Gospel of John, he referred to this same hour more than once, but it was always the hour has not yet come. Now, on the eve of his arrest, on the eve of his trial, on the eve of his crucifixion, he is fully aware that that hour has arrived and he now is asking the Father to, to clothe him in splendor in relationship to those circumstances. So this is the first of the three moments or expression of being glorified that he's concerned about. He's concerned that he would be glorified in his arrest, he would be glorified in his trial. He would be glorified in the way he endures the torture that he's about to experience. And ultimately, and most importantly, that he would be glorified in his sacrifice, in the execution he's going to experience on the cross. Leading immediately, three days later, to his resurrection from the dead. And when he comes out of the tomb three days from this moment that he's praying, he will be fully clothed in splendor. In fact, we could say it this way, without that resurrection three days later, we could not, nor could he have any confidence that he would be glorified in the events leading up to it. Uh, we've emphasized this before, but... Uh, if you're following me in scripture, keep your place in John 17. We'll come right back to it. I just want to remind you of how Paul phrases it in Romans 1, verse 4. This is the relationship between the cross and the resurrection in terms of glory. Paul writes this in Romans 1, 4. I've used this multiple times as an Easter message focus and rightly so but it's connected to what he's praying about in John 17 he's speaking about Christ and he says he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord Paul's point is in the event of the resurrection there was a declaration that was made to all of creation and all of humanity. Not everybody hears the declaration, not everybody pays attention, and certainly not everybody believes it, but it's a true declaration. And the word that's translated declared, you might remember me describing it from the original Greek text, it's the Greek word horizo, which we still have in our language today, it's come down into our language in the word horizon. 
And do you remember what a horizon is as it functions in our worldview? A horizon is you're looking out at the sunset or the sunrise, and you don't even have to have the sun in the picture. You can still see the horizon. The horizon is that dividing line that separates two categories of things. In our case, it, it, it separates the sky from the earth. And it's that, it's that conceptual line that separates those two categories. So Paul says that Christ was horizoned off from the other category by his resurrection in power from the dead to be seen and identified exclusively as the son of God. Well, what's the rest of the category? What's the category he was separated from? All other human beings. He uniquely was raised from the dead. So far in human history, no one else has ever been. Yes, there are two or three resurrection stories in scripture. Jesus himself raised some from the dead, but all of them who have previously been raised from the dead went on to live out their natural life and die a second time. Jesus being raised from the dead never to die again. All right, so when he prays in John 17, glorify your son, he's praying for the father to clothe him in splendor in the events of his arrest, the events of his trial, the events of his torture, the events of his crucifixion, and in ultimately and in fulfillment in the event of his resurrection. Now those things are all planned by the Lord before they ever happen. They're planned in such great detail. For those who participated in our Thursday night studies on Christ in the Old Testament, we've seen in the prophecies of Christ, there are amazing details written hundreds of years before the actual events of all of the circumstances of his crucifixion. His betrayal is prophesied. His torture is prophesied. The, the, the circumstances happening literally at the foot of the cross, the soldiers gambling over his garments, the, the, the unwillingness to divide the one special garment that he wore and, and to keep it whole. All of those things are prophesied exactly as they occurred. He knows they're prophesied. He's leaning on the reality that these things are planned by God himself to occur exactly as they're intended to occur. And yet he prays for them. And he prays for the greatest concern in them that he would be clothed in splendor in those events, set apart as the true son of God. Meaning he already is, but for others to see him being clothed in the splendor of his true identity. Like the Roman centurion that stood at the foot of the cross as he, as he watched Jesus breathe his last. And do you remember what the soldier said? Truly, truly, this one, this, 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 this man is not like other men. How many, how many men, how many men had that centurion observed being crucified? Hundreds, probably. There were thousands that were crucified by the Romans. And he was in charge of a crucifixion detail. It was his daily job to crucify people. He saw something in the death of this one that was unlike any other that had ever died in that circumstance 
before. So he prays for himself to be clothed in splendor, to be glorified. But there is a larger concern on his heart. And this, to me, is maybe the most weighty thing in this section. That there is a deeper concern than just, I want people to understand who I really am. I want to be clothed in splendor in these circumstances so they would rightly identify me as the true son of God. Yes, that's on his heart, but he sees all of that as a means to a greater end. What is the greater end on his heart? Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, and then this word, and if you're one that likes to underline or circle words in your Bible, underline or circle the word that. Or if you're one that takes notes, take note about the word that. It's what we call a purpose word in the construction of this sentence. It's identifying the, the, the words that follow the word that are now the purpose that was in his heart as he asked what he asked the Father to do. He only asked the Father to do one thing in this, in this section of the prayer. Only one thing, glorify me, Father. Glorify your Son. But what purpose was in his heart as he prayed that was so that I, as the Son now fully clothed in resurrection splendor, I may glorify you. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. What does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that in the, in the heart and mind of the Lord Jesus, nothing was more important than the glory of God. It's the one thing he's concerned about praying. Yes, he will get to praying for his disciples in just a moment, and yes, he will eventually even begin to pray for us that night. But before he gets to them and before he gets to us and uppermost in his heart's concerns above them and us, you know, I, I matter to the Lord. And if you belong to him, you matter to him as well. And most certainly these 11 men mattered deeply to him. He had poured into them for three years. He spent, can you imagine? And we've seen as we worked our way through the Gospel of Matthew, these guys were, at this point, they were still somewhat, well, I can only describe as somewhat spiritually knuckleheads. They, they didn't fully get it. They didn't fully understand what was going on. They kind of knew who he was and most of the time weren't really sure and had significant doubts. They often did the wrong thing at the wrong moment and stirred up more trouble for him than, than you and I might have been patient with. But he deeply cared for them. He poured himself into them. He spent every day with them for three years. And not just as we often do in our fellowship, connect with each other for an hour here and there, but he spent how much time with them? All day, every day. All day, every day. All day, every day. And even the best people can start to wear on you in an all day, every day kind of connection. But he deeply loved them, deeply cared for them, and had fully poured himself into them. But 
they're not his first concern. His first concern was for his heavenly father. And here's the issue for me. How do you glorify one who is already fully glorious? He's praying, think of this, he's praying for the Father God's glory, for the glory of God who is already fully glorious. It's not like God is sitting on his throne as Jesus is praying this prayer, and he's sitting at 98% glory level. And Jesus' prayer is gonna give him that last 2% and put him finally, after all of eternity that's preceded it, finally he'll reach the 100% glory level. It's not like that. The God the Father is sitting on his throne 100% glorious. But Jesus is praying, Father, glorify your son so that I may glorify you, so that I may clothe in splendor the fully splendorous one. How? How do you glorify someone that already has more glory than you can ever imagine? The reason this is important for us to think about is that while you and I will never glorify God to the same extent, to the same degree, or in the same way that Jesus glorified his Father, we are called to glorify God as well. Uh, there is a, uh, an old, theological document and some theological documents get old and they, they've served their purpose and they're better put to rest but some just because of the age doesn't diminish their value and their importance for the Christian community and this is one of those. Um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This was a document that great theologians of an earlier generation in church history where theology mattered more than generally speaking than it does in our present generation of Christianity. This is in the mid 1600s. The year was 1648. It's a whole different world back then. Completely different culture, completely different society. The great leading Bible teachers and pastors and theologians gathered together and they constructed this catechism. Now, not everyone is familiar with what a catechism is, but it's basically a teaching device. It's a, it's a, a way of teaching essential doctrines of the faith using a question and answer, what we would call Q&A format. And this is the very first question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It still applies to us, has everything to do with what Jesus was praying about that night. Question number one in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Now, man is you. Man is me. We're not talking about male, female. This is mankind, human beings. What are the, what's the chief end of human beings? Chief end refers to, why are we here? Excuse me. Why are we here? What are we here for? What's the purpose of our existence? What's the point of all of this? We all, every human being lives with a purpose for their existence. They just substitute much lower and smaller concerns as their chief purpose for being alive. Some of them are very important, but much lower than this one. The chief end. You were created and you exist for a reason. Here's the answer to that first question in the Westminster 
shorter catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The enjoy him forever is what we gain from the intention, the purpose, the effort that brings glory to God from our lives. We enjoy that relationship forever. But our purpose is to glorify God, period. It's a two-word answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God. So if you think of your life in this world, the purpose for your existence, and you come up with any other answer than this two-word answer, I'm here to glorify God, that's it, period. Now, there are, there are a thousand or more practical ways to glorify God. We prayed this morning for Jay, who's getting ready to launch back to, to Kenya and to, to Uganda and to, to visit six refugee camps that, that no other person that we know of is visiting in the way that he's going to support them and help them and teach them and train them. How many of us will do what Jay is doing? None of us. Now we're here to support, we're here to pray, we're here to financially support the effort, but he's been privileged to glorify God in that specific way and we share in that because we're sharing in his work, but we're not going. So there are literally, you know, that's just one way to glorify God. And trust me, I believe this, I'm convinced of this. Jay's effort to go is going to bring glory to God. But, but that's not your way and that's not my way. We all have our own ways that God appoints for us to glorify God. But that's the goal and that's the purpose. That's the overarching concern. And that's the number one thing that was on the heart and mind of the Lord Jesus as he prayed. And so our takeaway, the application of this for our lives is that should be our number one thought in life. So you wake up in the morning, and if you're anything like me, you might, as soon as you wake up, you might have a dozen things spring into your mind in terms of what's ahead of you that day. But if this thought isn't on your mind and heart, you're kind of missing the point of those dozen things. This is the most important thing you'll ever learn about why you're here. I trust most of you already know it. As Leslie was sharing a moment ago, she already understands, she knows this principle, she's learned it before. For her, this is a refresher course. Some of us are familiar with this. Some of this is brand new for you. You've never even heard this before. Whether you've heard it before or whether this is the 10th or the 100th time you've heard it, if I said it 1,000 times, it's not enough. Because this really is the truth of why you're here, why you exist, why your heart is beating one more time after this word that I'm sharing, and why you're drawing one last full lungful of breath into your lungs. You're existing for this reason and only for this reason. And for those that their heart beats the last time, their breath is taken in one last time and then they exhale that breath and their life in this world comes to an end and they never did actively 
pursue glorifying God in this world, they have missed the entire purpose for why they were here. They've missed the entire purpose. They didn't get it. They lost the greatest opportunity and the only opportunity that has any lasting meaning. Now, I didn't get to verses four and five like I intended. Uh, so I'm gonna say that for next time. That'll be two weeks from today. Um, there are two more moments that Jesus prays regarding God's glory. In verse four, I'll just give you a preview, real quick preview. He prayed about a past moment of glorifying God. All of the three years of his public ministry and what that meant in relationship to God's glory. And then in verse five, he prays for another future moment, but a moment now extending even beyond the resurrection. There's a reason why as wonderful and as glorious as the resurrection was, and we studied this in detail when uh, we were in Acts chapter one, not terribly long ago in our Sunday studies, and we, we spent several weeks studying the doctrine of the ascension of Christ. What he prays for in verse five is the event that we call the ascension, his return to heaven. There's a reason why Jesus rose from the dead but then didn't stay on this earth as a glorious being just interacting with human society and hanging out for the last 2,000 years. There's a reason why he returned to heaven. There's a reason why he sat down upon the throne and it had everything to do with him being fully restored to the glory that he once shared with the Father. And in that restoration, a fullness of the Son fulfilling the desire of his heart in his prayer from verse one and glorifying the Father by his return and his enthronement at the right hand of God. All right, so we'll end our study here this morning. Uh, remember, next Sunday morning, we have our home churches, home church meetings, and then, Lord willing, we'll return here in two weeks, and we will finish out this section in a study in verses four and five. God bless you.